I'm Sarah Lindquist from Fuse. We're an early stage venture firm based right here in the Pacific Northwest. And just like the founders in our portfolio, we are just getting started. We believe that founders deserve more, more urgency, more community, more expertise, more reliability, more of everything. And we aim to deliver. Join me as I introduce each of our portfolio companies in the Fuse family to date. Today, Fuse GP Brendan Wills sits down with Ryan Fink, co-founder and CEO of Diggs. Ryan has started three companies before the age of 35, and he scaled his first two to successful exits. And he has even bigger visions for company number three, Diggs. In today's conversation, he'll share what it takes to build great businesses. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. We've got Ryan Fink, the founder of Diggs. Thanks for making the time for us today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. Really excited to have you on the podcast and for you to share a little bit about your journey and what you're building at Diggs. We partnered with you on day one on this journey and that relationship stemmed back a long time, many, many years. I think the best way to start, Ryan, is maybe just to share a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. You're kind of a rare breed. You've already sold two companies. You sold two of them before. I think you were 32 or 33 years old and now you're on your third business. So I actually studied in college pre-law and found out very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Found out very quickly I didn't want to be an attorney. Growing up, I always just loved tinkering, pulling things apart, figuring out how things work. And so very quickly out of college, I started building my first company called OTG and started using computer vision, machine learning to solve some challenges around wearable devices and built that company, very small company, about five folks, built it for about five years. And then it was acquired in 2015 by a larger startup out of the Bay. At the larger company or the larger startup, helped build and launch a remote collaboration software for heads-up displays. So really cool product, sold in, you know, drove the first commercial deals with Porsche and a handful of others. Before jumping out and seeing an opportunity to bring remote collaboration and augmented reality to consumer handheld devices. This was about six months before ARKit hit the market. So really great market timing. We launched Stream back in 2017 and we built it up to about 25 folks. We had about 20 million users of our SDK, 120 employees and some really large customers like Lowe's and Best Buy. And then Stream got acquired by Front Door, a public company on NASDAQ, and really great built-in marketplace, great opportunity for our technology. So was able to scale through Front Door before getting the itch again. So took some time off, left Front Door, and with my co-founder, Ty, who's a former home builder, we were just thinking through, how do we create a digital twin of the home in a more scalable way. Cause that was our long-term vision at stream was through all these micro video calls. We're chasing pixels, trying to create a picture of the home for the homeowner. And so we put our heads together after we left stream and front door and Ty went off to Amazon pay global. And we were just thinking, you know, how do we create this digital understanding, the semantic understanding of the home without making anyone go out and scan it or actually capture these data points. And that's when digs was born was, we felt like we came up with a pretty novel approach because all of the data around the home is created during the build process. 
And then once the home is handed over, it's lost out into the ether. So we figured, you know, if we can solve some pain points for builders and also homeowners, then maybe we had a more scalable approach to capturing all the information in and around the home. Now with Diggs, you know, it's one of those products and companies where when you tell somebody about it, they get it in about two seconds. And they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that. I can't believe that hasn't already been created. But as you know, there's a lot that goes into digitizing a home. When you think about that process and journey, obviously we're now in almost year two. That's a big complex challenge. Where do you even start that process? Great question. So even though Ty was a former residential home builder, by putting our heads together, we came up with a pretty good hypothesis. So that's where we started. Me being a homeowner and going through the build process and Ty being a builder, we just identified some pain points we had lived through. And then what we did is we interviewed 25 different builders from around the country just to test our hypothesis and see where their pain points were during the build process. Because one of the challenging things is, is you don't want to disrupt or blow up someone's workflow because then it's really hard for them to want to adopt your solution. So our goal was always to how can we just enhance the existing workflow? And there was a couple of things that we identified that really stood out across all 25 builders. So one was collaboration and communication is extremely difficult. There's a lot of different folks involved when you're building a home. And so communicating decisions and capturing those decisions in one place just wasn't being done today. And then the second was the homeowner handoff. Typically, homeowners, after they get the keys to the largest asset in their life, they either get a couple of pamphlets or best case scenario, they'll get a physical binder with about 20% of the information on their home. So those were two areas that every builder we spoke to knew that there were some challenges around. Other large companies in the space, project management software companies, weren't really focused on these two areas. So there was a bit of a gap in the market. And so we thought it was a really good opportunity for us to focus on those two pain points and do them really well or solve them really well. Love it. Yep. Perfect. I think we all, if we're lucky enough to have a house, we all have those binders and they're outdated and a total mess. And so I think everybody understands that really well. So I want to kind of circle back to the entrepreneurial journey for you and then apply sort of some of those learnings to how you're operating digs because it's your third go around. I think the most important thing at first is you've now been running companies for, let's call it a decade. And, you know, we interviewed Bobby Wagner a few weeks ago and talked about longevity. For you, you're a very different person than you were 10 years ago. You have three kids, you're married. How have you been able to sustain your performance? Like when we talk every month, there's just a lot of clarity in the way you operate and think. How have you been able to maintain that and also stay healthy for, you know, a decade now of running a company? It's challenging because it is truly a marathon. And as much as you hear that when you're in the trenches, it's really hard to take it to heart because everything feels like it's a sprint. So I think one of the best things that I've tried to do is understand this is a marathon and there's going to be some high highs and there's going to be some low lows. So just try to smooth out those lows as much as possible. And for me, what that also means is when I first started a decade ago, I was so green. I made literally every mistake in the book that you can make. I remember going through Portland Seed Funds boot camp and accelerator, and they literally had a piece of paper that said, here's the things you don't do when you're creating a business. And I had literally made every single one of those mistakes on that sheet. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, I'm not going to do that again. So I've taken that with me and 
every single company, like I've made new mistakes, but I've tried not to make the old ones. And so I've just been really open and tried to make myself as comfortable as possible with failure and then learning from it. And I think the accumulation of the past two companies leading into digs, it's really just a testament to I'm going to learn and I'm going to take those learnings and I'm just going to start off in a better place the next time I get the opportunity to build a company. And it also comes down to working with great people. I think we're at like 22 people here at Diggs and I've worked with 18 of those folks at my past two companies. So I've been able to just build really solid relationships that fill my gaps in really great ways so that I can amplify their strengths. They can fill my gaps. I can really focus on what I'm good at. And it really helps when things are challenging to know you have people that are filling your various different gaps and you're kind of working cohesively in the same direction. Yeah. And I I was going to equate your hiring approach to, I'd say, your maturation as a CEO. That's where you see the greatest lift, I'd say, in performance is founders and CEOs mature. They tend to hire really well. Now, one of the challenges with an early stage technology company is you're limited in budget and you have a runway to budget against. You have you know, various operating goals. And so how do you trade off hiring to fill those gaps compared to doing the best you can with whatever resources you have at that moment in time? One of the books I read, I hate to be that person, but I read No Rules Rules, just a phenomenal book that is a lot about culture and hiring. It's based on Netflix's culture and it's just fascinating. One of the things that I found after reading that book that I was trying to do at Stream and did an okay job was hire for talent density. And if you hire for talent density, that unlocks autonomy and ownership. And then that allows me as a leader to focus again on the things that I'm really good at and the things that are maybe highest priority. So when you have a limited budget as a startup, I mean, that's always a challenge. The limited budget You're going up against sometimes massive companies that have a lot more folks than you. So hiring is the most important thing as a CEO and hiring the right folks for the right period and timing of your company. Because somebody who's a great fit potentially in 24 months might not be a good fit for where you're at today in your company. So getting really good at identifying what profile of person you need for the next 18, 24 months. Do they have the ability to grow beyond that? And then are they super talented? Because if they are, then you can give them that freedom, ownership, and autonomy to take things off of your plate and allow you to focus on moving the company as a whole forward. And I think we've been really fortunate here at Diggs to be able to find those really talented folks to enable us all to, again, just amplify our strengths instead of try to shore up our weaknesses. And there's one thing, which is talent and people being able to do their job. And then there's another, which is maintaining culture while still putting up results. I'd say one of the most interesting things about the last board meeting was I'd say that the culture is sort of an extension of you and Ty. And I'm curious as to how do you think you're able to maintain a very positive, light culture, but very performance oriented? Is it, hey, look, we just hire for that? Or is it, are there things that you're doing day in and day out to be able to keep the ball rolling on the culture? Because as you know, in startups, that can easily go away when you're in the trenches, as you say. Yeah, totally. So absolutely, we hire for it. 
one of the first things we did as a leadership team. So I hired leadership first, and then we got together and we defined our leadership principles. And so we said, what's really important to us as a leadership team about how we operate, how we make decisions, and we define those. So what that did is it set us up for success to identify what profile of folks will fit within the culture we're trying to build, how we make decisions, how we debate together. And I think that's really set us up for success to identify the right type of people to be within our organization, because we do like to have fun. Like this is the hardest thing what founders do, I think we'll ever go through is going through the ups and downs of being a founder and trying to build something. And so doing it with people that you can have fun with, but also make you better attracts more folks because at the end of the day, the most talented people want to work with other really talented people they can work with. So yeah, identifying the leadership principles, hiring against those, and then doing things on a regular basis to encourage that culture to thrive. So one of the things we do is we have an all hands on every Thursday. We call them Happy AF, (laughs) Happy Almost Friday, or you can send that to something else. But it's really meant, even in the name, it's meant for us to get together and have fun and celebrate our wins. Like there's enough challenges throughout the week. One of our tenets is we're going to be honest and open with each other and we're going to have fun. And we're going to show off each other's work. And then we also call out Dig Stars. So folks that are maybe unsung heroes, folks that are going above and beyond, and the whole team just kind of goes around and calls out different folks on the team. And it's really, really fun because a lot of the times we actually have to say, okay, that's it, because <laughs> we're at time, is people are just celebrating each other so much. And so doing things like that on a regular basis, it's a lot of work. The communication part's a lot of work to communicate your principles over and over again. But it's a core part of my job as a leader and my leadership team to constantly be like chief repetitive officer. I like always communicate and keep repeating. Yeah, that's great. And I believe most of the team is in person now with the office in Portland. What's your belief or your philosophy around in person, remote? You know, you've experienced it all in a startup setting to a corporate setting in remote. How do you think about that right now? Any recommendations to people a little bit earlier in their journey around assembling the team? So especially since we're hiring for talent density, it becomes harder and harder to find the right folks if you just centralize it in we're in Vancouver, Washington, Portland area. So we're remote first. So we have folks in Montana, in New York, spread out across the country it's still really important for us to have a dedicated space for us to get together and have that in-person time. So we do all team offsites at least twice a year. We get the whole company together just to make sure we can realign and bond as a team. But then we do have an office space because the majority of our team is in the Pacific Northwest for us to come together a couple days a week, at least hit a whiteboard, grab lunch and just get that in-person time. So yeah, we are remote first because the talent density piece, but it's still super important to see each other in person. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking about founder advice, having gone through this multiple times now, if there was sort of one piece of feedback or advice to people in their garage working on their startup, what would it be? Oh, one piece of advice. I might cheat a little and give a couple. It's okay to not have all the answers. When I first started building my first startup, 
I really felt like I had to protect the team because I had to be the one to have all the answers. Even my interactions with investors, I felt like they expected me to have the answers, but in all reality, we don't, nobody does. And great investors want, like you all want to create a dialogue and want to be the first call, whether it's good or bad. And so coming to that realization is no one has all the answers. So (laughs) yeah, it's okay not to, and it's okay to ask for help and advice, whether that's from advisors or your team or your investors. And then if I could say one more. Go more, go for it. All right. (laughs) And then also being data informed, not necessarily data driven. What that means to us is, at least partially, is listen to our customers and always do the extra work of distilling their feedback, not taking it at face value. Because a lot of times customers, you can feel their pain points, but they don't necessarily know what they need. They can say what they want, but if you take that and you distill it, you can really figure out what they need. And so that's one of the things we've worked on since we started with user research at Diggs. It's something that we've really worked to perfect is look at the data, be informed by the data, but also do the distillation process to understand it and then figure out what's the correlation to what people actually need and what pain points we actually need to solve and then be creative in how to solve those. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. We were just meeting with an entrepreneur about two hours ago. And they're fairly early on in their journey. And when they meet with potential customers, he just sits down and says, look, I'm not going to sell you. You tell me what you need. I'll tell you whether or not we can do it for you. I love and, that. You know, that's a pretty simple way of doing it rather than saying, hey, here's my you know, infrastructure software. Does this solve your problems? Obviously, you have to be patient when you go in with that mindset of tell me what you need because it may not match. And so that's going to require a lot of questions. And that shows a lot of maturity because if it's not a good match, then that's okay. You go on to the next potential customer and see if you can solve their problems. And that's something else I had to learn along the way as well is not every customer is going to be a good fit and that's okay. Yeah. Well, we're jumping around a little bit, but this is more targeted for the early stage CEO. The funding environment is different than it was three years ago, probably more similar to what it was 10 years ago. What would be some pieces of advice to people early on in that journey? Maybe they've raised a little bit of cash from their parents or their uncle, or they've got a little bit saved up from their own work, but just kind of cobbling together that first couple hundred thousand dollars to get going. Because to me, like that seems to be where we're at in the market now for people without a product. You're a little different because you've sold two companies already, but for the first time entrepreneur, it's not going to be the easiest path. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple sure ways to show or paths to product market fit. So of course, the environment that we're seeing now, it's no longer growth at all costs. So you really have to show product market fit through either the willingness to purchase your product, or if you're a product-led growth company, then really healthy adoption and usage metrics. So I would advise be maniacally focused on showing product market fit through one or both of those veins as quickly as possible. Yeah. Making that ask to, you know, like I could give tips based off of our own fundraising and there's a bunch of tactics, but for you, when you were 23 asking for money, what worked well to keep the ball rolling for those $50,000 checks at a time? What was effective? One of the most effective things looking back was, again, it comes back to communication. So did a lot of research on what investors would potentially fit 
or where would we fit within their thesis? And then the ones that we identified, we could be a good fit and we could get into and have a conversation. Even if they said no, what I think we did really well was we said, okay, great. I think you'd still be a great partner. Can I keep you updated? And what VC is going to say no at that point? It's a free update. (laughs) Exactly. It's a free update. And basically they're saying, okay, go prove it. And so it gave us the ability to build this really curated list where we can say, hey, here's what we're going to go do over the next six months. And then we got to show them with our execution that we are achieving the things we said we were going to. And when there would be these little setbacks, we'd also communicate those as well. But what it allowed us to do is build relationships over six to nine months with some investors that originally said no. And then by the end of those six to nine months, we had a lot of those investors come back in and say, okay, you did what you said you were going to do. I love the traction. And they actually came back in and wrote us checks because you're right. When you don't have you know, a track record, you really do have to build up those relationships in a really diligent way and it takes a lot more work, but it is well worth it. Now I understand why you're so good with your updates to us. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. It's very impressive the way you communicate the progress and there's real substance to the updates, which you know, we certainly appreciate. I'm sure the smaller investors appreciate too. It gives a lot of comfort and, and it gives people like us the ability to help out because we know, you know what's going on outside of just the regular conversations. This is awesome. Exactly the type of depth we wanted to hit on and really appreciate you making the time for us. Exciting few years ahead for Diggs. Thanks again for choosing Fuse on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for choosing us back. It's been a trip and got a lot of work to do. So I'm going to go back and uh, start working. Get back to it. (laughs) Get back to it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Ryan. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and were able to take away some key snippets from Ryan. As always, thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you on the next one.